Hey, welcome to Suggested Donations. I'm Tony Cernai. I'm Edward Minoff. We sat down with Patricia Patty. What would? Our good friend and uh, super talented artist. Uh, and uh, she spoke a little bit about her show, which was up at the time, Venus Apocalypse, among other things. Uh, we decided to break this one into two, so... Uh, They'd be more digestible. Enjoy. So we're here with the uh, superstar artist, Patty Watwood. Patricia Watwood, sorry. Patri- Patricia Watwood. That's like my I have the same name. problem because, yeah. you know, Ted and, and Edward. I've increasingly gotten to the point where now when I'm meeting people like at work or at a gallery, I do introduce myself as Patricia, which I never did right. when I was young because yeah. nobody ever called me that. So now it's become interesting because I have a whole section of my life where people do call me Patricia. And then I know it's a work concept. <laughs> right. I know this is like my business genre. In some ways, I kind of like having that separation because... There is a little bit of just this public face and being like a persona, so to speak. Right. And so in some ways, it's kind of nice having a little bit of clarity between, you know, my brothers and sisters who (laughs) can take the mickey out of me and like, you know, people who know me in a professional context. Yeah. So Edward. (laughs) Patricia. Lockwood. I'm Tony, by the way, guys. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, you're not Anthony, right? No. no He's yeah. like a legitimate yeah. Tony. He's the legitimate Tony. Well, I, I mean, I... I You'll I always be skater Tony to me. That, thank you. I actually I actually am... Um, I, that's one of those nicknames that I'm pretty kind yeah. of proud of. We're like, keeping so it. I forgot who, who was the first to say it, but I was like, I like that. Usually you get a nickname. Yeah. And you're like, Most please... Most nicknames are not good. You're like, please don't call me that. And then it sticks. And as soon as you say, don't call me that, people then start... Then it really call, sticks. Then it, then it really yeah, sticks. And you just have you. to accept oh, okay. it. Um, so we've known you for a while. You know what's funny is that I knew about you before I actually met you because uh, Ted and I, we both met you at the Water Street Atelier... But when I went to the Water Street Atelier, which was a, which was a, um, a school that J- that uh, Jacob Collins founded, uh, God, was it in the in the nineties now? All Water the way back Street in the 90s. was ninety seven, but wow. his yeah. studio at Pohemus was ninety six. Which is where Weren't I met you. you. That's yeah. where we were I both at Pohemus place, from right? The, yeah, from the two and the three subway station, and, right. and you were carrying like a drawing board, and I was like too nerdy and nervous to talk yeah. to you. <laughs> but by the time I got to the Water Street Atelier, you went off to France to study. Yeah, I went so and it, studied with Ted Jacobs. At Ted Jacobs. In the there. French yeah. countryside. In the Loire Valley. That sounds yeah. brutal. So it I was kn- actually such a good antidote for, like, I'd been in, I'd moved to New York City, for, like, fresh to New York City. From? And from Seattle, but I'm from St. Louis, right. so Midwest. And then a year and a half of that intense experience of moving to New York, and then I found myself in the middle of nowhere in France. (laughs) (laughs) How was your French? Did you know how to speak French? My French was pretty bad, but I I learned a lot. I definitely, I'm still not fluent, but I got to the point where I was comfortable getting around. I could talk to people, ask for directions. I could, you know, get a hotel room. I could travel. I could, that was great. Were you in Paris a lot, or were you? I went to Paris five or six times that year I was there and had already been there a little bit before. So in the end, like I, I felt like I really got to know Paris fairly well as well. Yeah. W- what made you go out to study with Ted Seth Jacobs, who, who was, um, so it was all, one of the original teachers, well, one of w- the original teachers at the New York Academy. 
He was. He was for a, a brief period and then a big teacher at uh, the Art Students League. And my whole journey as far as studying started in Seattle um, at what's now Gage Academy, but at the time was Academy of Realist Art. And Tony's um, writer, Anthony Ryder, was a teacher there. And he was really instrumental for me. Uh, studying with him really clarified my sense of what I wanted to do and what I, how I wanted to study. He's I just, like a Zen master. He you, is. Like, and he just like if I, I wish I could channel him when I'm painting. He's just so he's so relaxed. He wants to be painting, so it's like he's never hurrying to get through anything. He's sort of like savoring the experience of actually creating the painting. And there's something so like amazing and almost like art monkish about yeah, him. Yeah, he just, brings this great like spirituality and meditative quality to his practice and. He, so he was really instrumental, and I, I was at that young point in your life where you kind of have this vision of, okay, I really want to do that, and you just find somebody who's a mentor, and you're like, tell me what to do. I'll right. just do whatever you tell me. And he told me to go study in France with Ted Seth Jacobs, who was his primary teacher. And at the time, Ted had like a two-year waiting list, and I was really eager. So he was like, well, you know, my friend Jacob Collins is just putting together this school. And that, like, I mean, the like, rest of my so life, like, spun out from that conversation. So, yeah, I, like, came to New York and did a workshop with Jake and met him. And he had a spot. Um, and did that, he seem crazy to you, or? Oh, no, he didn't seem crazy <laughs> to me. He wasn't swinging passionate from a chandelier. No, no. Well, he's no. passionate. There's no We're doubt all about looking at each other. He was passionate and like, inspiring uh, and, like, a really good teacher. And right. I was just like, I want to do that. That was great, you know. Yeah, I mean, Tony and I had a similar, like, we went to his studio, and he did seem like a mad scientist to both of us. I think we, we agreed on that afterwards. But we were I, both, I think, so inspired by him. Just like, I mean, he, he was like, I, I saw other painters who painted, but he was, like, just consumed with painting. Like, it, it just seemed like he didn't stop painting, and, like, that's all he wanted to do. And that was so inspiring at the time. I mean, that's I think I he definitely instilled that in this whole our whole group just this like consuming passion for it and his dedication to work you know he so clearly tells the students like you should work on this absolutely as hard as if you were going to be a neurosurgeon or an architect or right. any other really extremely difficult and challenging career path like you should expect to just put yourself whole like self long into hours this. and yeah. just like if you don't love it, don't he do it. He instilled all of us with a really good work ethic, yeah. I think. Yeah, that was, I mean, he was intense about, like, being there, like, pretty early in the morning. And he also instilled neurosis in all of us, too, just being so nervous. And just made, yeah, yeah, I mean, we were all just neurotic about, like, oh, we got to get up at the crack of dawn <laughs> and get over there and start drawing, 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 drawing. Well, and I think just, like, the, the level of integrity and expectation we put into what we're trying to do, yeah, it is a kind of neurosis for sure. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you, um, so you came to New York. You got up, you got up, uh, you packed all your stuff from Seattle, moved over to New York, started studying. Yeah. What moved your family? You were married at the I time. I was married. I didn't have no kids. kids, but um, Duncan and I were already married, and he was working in film, and 
man, he really loves me because he just yeah. supported my, <laughs> I want to move to New York and be an artist. <laughs> like, okay, that, honey. Sure. And I was young enough that that didn't seem like a totally ridiculous <laughs> right, thing to do. Right, right. Like looking back on it now, I'm like, wow, that was kind of a flyer, <laughs> yeah. but I guess it worked out. You're you crazy. <laughs> what are you doing? That's yeah. what I, when I interview students who want to do this, I'm like, that's yeah, a bad decision. Don't do it. <laughs> don't, 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 so, don't do it. Oh my God. so discouraging to them. Just like, you don't want to do this. I mean, if I would do the same thing, I would totally be like, if there's, and I remember teachers saying this, if there's some other way that you can make a living, have a career, you should do that. You should do that. I believe that because I think if, if you, like, if you can't, if you just can't live with anything, like if you, if you have to do this. Then I can't say anything to stop you. You're going to do it. You're going to do it. And you're then you're the right person to do it. But if there's anything I can say, like anything at all that will stop you, (laughs) don't say it and tell you. Yeah. Well, a that and b you're probably like going to ultimately realize, you know, maybe it'll be now, maybe it'll be 20 years down the road that that was a bad decision. The thing that's interesting, and I think you guys probably have gotten to the same point, like. As we've gotten older and we've been doing this for this amount of time, like I don't have any choice at this point but to just keep going. Like I have no other skills. I'm not Not, good at anything else. This is the only thing I can do. And you're just like, okay, I'm just going to keep going. I have no backup plan. Agassi was like that. We're not qualified for anything. He was saying like he hates tennis, but at this point, I can't do anything else. We're, yeah, we're all in that So, boat. yeah, there's yeah. sometimes when maybe I'm hating painting a little bit, but I just got to keep going. <laughs> as much as we goof about it, um, you know, those moments when things are working out and something's coming together in a painting, boy, is there just, there's Nothing no better. other better feeling than just, oh, it's I'm so really proud true. of that. I'm so proud of that. And, of course, a week later you hate it. But for that moment. That moment is good. It's just it's so euphoric. I was had I just had this show, and I think we've all had this. Um, this is Venus Apocalypse, yeah, at the Dacia at Dacia Gallery. Gallery. Gotcha. And uh, I think we've all had this experience. You know, you're working towards a show, and you you work so hard, and it's so stressful because there's so many things you absolutely have to get done by a certain period, and you know, with whatever painting that you're not going to be happy until like this thing is beautiful or this. And sometimes like, it's pretty hard to kind of like fight it through, you know? Um, but it's, so you're kind of like stressed out kind of miserable, right. In a certain way. I find this incredible clarity. Other ways it, that is the best that is. And then as opposed to later after the show is up and maybe come, people are coming to see the show and they're saying, Oh, I really like that's when you really start to hate, but then you really, right. You know, you're kind of feeling like you already, you did all the work and you're feeling kind of like an empty bucket, you know? Right. And then there's other issues just in terms of like public persona and talking to people. And it's so much less satisfying than that feeling you have when you're in front of the easel and you're like, this is going really well. And, you know, everyone's going to I can't wait to show this to my friends. And um, you just feel full of potential. Nothing beats that. It's really good. Yeah. So what tell us a little bit about that show about Venus Apocalypse. So um, that's the first show I've done with this gallery, Dacha, and they're in the Lower East Side. And most of the galleries down there, probably all of them, are quite small in scale because the, you know, it's, the neighborhood is full of three and four story buildings. There's small storefronts. And um, 
I really liked that about that space because it meant that I didn't have to have a large number of paintings. But your paintings are not small scale. They're not, but it's not. There aren't a lot of them, right? right. So there's those like 13 works in the show, which for me is a really good number because I I do paint slowly. I'm I also have two kids. Like I'm not a hugely prolific artist in a given year. So that was really the perfect size for me. And the other thing I felt is like it gave me the opportunity to do one body of work that was all kind of interrelated. And I didn't put in, you know, I think we all, um, training as realists, you maybe do a little still life, you do some landscape, you do some portraits, you know, you kind of have a range. And since it was a small show, I wanted it to be almost more like a concept album where everything is kind of just on one theme. So Venus Apocalypse, um, I'd started this other Venus painting which the subject of Venus for me at a certain point seemed obvious, like an obvious choice since I'm like a committed painter of the nude and especially like the female nude and I like allegory and myth. And so Venus, like, you know, goddess of love and beauty, it seemed like an obvious choice, like to deal with the, the subject of a grand manner nude. Um, but then um, I kind of hit on this set of images using the nude but then with the background being um, kind of dystopian landscapes. Um, The first one was like she's lying down on this field of kind of broken technology and frankly just garbage, you know. And um, then the Venus apocalypse, she's actually standing up, but she's kind of walking out of this sort of destroyed world full of like garbage. And it also has a lot of um, imagery related to like environmental change and environmental crisis. Right. So that's kind of like what we were talking about before. Circling back to what you were talking about before. So, you know, you'd asked about how maybe thinking about fracking or environmental issues, you know, are we finding that, you know, is it affecting our work? And I'm Finding that, in fact, like yes, it really. Or how do we how do we express what we're feeling in our work? And right. it sounds like you're you're tapping into that with this show. I think it start like started with Pandora, um, thinking about you know that idea of opening a Pandora's box, and I feel like our. That's our, an amazing metaphor for right now. Right, our moment. You know, ever since frankly September 11, you know, the world everything feels very like vulnerable and fragile and. Um, and I think we living here in New York City and we have little kids like I think we're just much more conscious of the fact that like the veil has been pulled back and like the edge of destruction feels kind of palpable and close. And so I wanted to try to figure out how to incorporate that feeling of just like vulnerability and anxiety and concern like, you know, for my world, but then also using the 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 body, the 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 figurative language because I think it it really conveys meaning you know? do you feel that that's a juxtaposition then like you're sort of juxtaposing like the most beautiful thing with this scary or ugly thing I guess it is a juxtaposition especially like the Venus is where they're kind of lying down it's definitely like they're the beautiful nude kind of representing sort of the ideal in a sense and then the world around them is this chaos and destruction which in some ways like we really don't want to acknowledge the chaos and destruction and trash and everything that's around us we want to kind of pretend it's not there so um, I, yeah, I was definitely kind of drawing that contrast between, and we all think about what is realism? What is, what is real? Right. You know, is the nude real? Is the garbage real? Is the construction real? Um, um, 
So yeah, it was definitely playing with that contrast. Have you always used allegory and myth as far as the the vehicle to get your uh, your expression across? You know, mostly. Um, there have been a lot of paintings that I've made that have really, in some ways, started as more sincere, like portraits. You know, and where it's really just kind of like an investigation of one particular person's face or their presence or who they are. But I think even then, I'm do kind of tend to think about things in terms of like archetypal meanings you know and you know if I'm painting an old woman I'm thinking about you know what is the archetype of of the old woman what does it mean to be thinking about an old woman or a beautiful young woman or so yeah I I think it's because I have an interest in thinking about how the particular things that we're looking at in painting the particular reality that we're um examining and trying to make art out of how does it relate to like a more universal sense or a universal idea about that for for the viewer or for for someone else in a future point of time you know how how will they connect to that same subject as 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 an idea as an archetype does it also come back to you then does it become personal and like if you're painting an, an old woman like are you confronting your mortality as you know a young woman are you confront I think it must I think it always has to be personal because I think you know we all live this life like in our own skin from our own point of view you know we all are contemporary right and so I try to be um I do try to keep it personal in terms of trying to speak about things that I feel like I know, right? As opposed to being didactic about that which I don't know or ha don't have experience with. Or I try to show maybe if I'm thinking about an allegory, I, try, I do definitely think about embedding like my own um, sense, my own story, my own narrative, right. you know? Do you think that being a, a, a woman, being a female painter, factors into that in some way? Or? I do. I think largely because of how um, I picture the nude and think about the nude since I'm a woman myself mm -hmm. um, and thinking about you know how women are viewed in society, how our bodies are viewed in society, um, how women and their bodies and their faces have been viewed art historically. and. Um, Especially before the 20th century, you know, women, the nude, like from the Renaissance to the 19th century, were always like kind of a, a representation of beauty, but not so much like an intellectual presence or something with agency. Right. So then I'm the person doing the thinking and the painting, confronting this subject, which is the female nude. And I definitely have, I think, a a desire and an instinct to try to shape uh, the feeling from that painting being different because of my my experience as a right. woman. So you feel like you're trying to, in some ways, maybe counter like art history and and what has sort of developed as as sort of the female nude. I, certainly, in terms of. Um, Image, yeah, absolutely. Because, like, in the 19th century, you know, you'd have these beautiful, maybe naturalistic, you know, thinking it, you know, from Ang to Bouguereau, representations of the beautiful and kind of naturalistic nude. But the the women, um, you know, they're not they're representations of an ideal, of an art ideal, right. of the nude. But they're not representations of women with presence. 
you know, that's why Manet's Olympia was such a shocking and confrontational image because she looks at you very directly. And I find talking to other women and women artists that we all just totally dig that picture because of the way she is both an art object subject and then also totally just like looking at you and like very seductively like knowing but seductively <laughs> but also, but like also intelligently yeah, right? right you know she's intimidating right yeah absolutely and i i love that um so yeah i definitely I, but then and then in the 20th century well, i think wait, back to that painting for a second um the fact that it was made by a, uh, a male does it i mean do you look at it as it's not quite as powerful because you know how does he know or is it are you looking That's at it from question. a male point of view like this is sort of his it still desire is, or his yeah, it whatever it still is a male point of view and yeah. he's still kind of you know the subject of that painting is the archetype of the female subject as nude you know as seen by the male by artist the male. now yeah. with that painting the exact same painting if that was painted by a like a Cecilia Bow or something like that, would it be a different idea? I mean, would it seem like a different painting to you? I mean, if it was would the it be exact more powerful or less powerful? Would it come all? It probably would, it come would be more powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, like, there's some, it is somehow, like, sexually charged, that yeah. painting, and maybe it would be, I don't know, charged in a different way if it was, I mean, but you do get, I mean, with writers, you get male writers who are sort of renowned for writing with female voice, uh, you get filmmakers. I read it. No, absolutely. I mean, I, you definitely, and I, I think that painting of um, of Olympia is is very sensitive from a male point of view. I mean, I think that was definitely his point: is trying to inject the humanity of this person into that painting, which I, you know he right. really did successfully. Yeah, it's not like it, it's you're it's specifically gendered, you know, that only you know, I can only understand painting the female nude or only understand, you know, yeah. you can only relate to the male nude. I don't think that's it at all. But um it definitely, you know, in the 19th century thinking about, you know, the ideal in femininity and the ideal of nude, that's not something that speaks to me as a contemporary woman. So you're trying to sort of channel something different in your nudes. Yeah. A little bit. And then the other, I was going to say about like the 20th century is I think feminism really grappled with the women um, as subject of art and by largely just rejecting it, you know, or con- dealing with, with it in a very glib and ironic way or, you know, in confrontational way. And I guess I'm kind of coming around to the other side is like, is there yet a way to deal with it in a very beautiful way? Like in a very, what I think of as something that's more holistic, like can I not actually be confrontational with it, but somehow yet still be very honest, you know? It seems like fashion and fashion photographers um, almost kept that tradition of the beauty, the you know, the beauty of women, even some of the power of, Absolutely. of women, where yeah. the art world ended up, you know, making it kind of like you were saying at times ironic, and uh, and you know not pretty sometimes, like not, not all, but uh, it seemed like fashion and all that really sort of uh, kept the the 
that status of like the beauty you know, of women yeah, really up it's there. It's interesting, you know, beauty high. really became like a bad word in painting for a long yeah. time, but I don't think that happened in photography. No. There's so much like really beautiful, like celebrations of beauty, whether, you know, it's the, the figure or um, the portrait or the landscape. I mean, so it's just a embrace of beauty in photography. Yeah. yeah. It, it's weird also because when I look at, um, you know, whether they're using it to sell a product which mostly it's sell, selling uh, clothes or you know, something. Um, when you look into the art world, like they were using beauty to show the quality of this product. Like it's beautiful, the, the, the product is beautiful, whether, you know, like I was saying, if it was like fashion, you know, some, something f in fashion. But when it came to fine art, um, if you were trying to do something quality or try to get the idea of quality across, you were fine with making things ugly. And I, I always thought that was, didn't make sense. Um, yeah, in the I art look, world. When I look at the 20th century, it's like beauty is beauty. So why was it taken out of art? I think there's a lot of reasons why beauty was not cool. And I, I think for one thing, it was the commodification of, and materialism in, you know, with, whether it's photography or glossy magazines, so that art wanted to try to distance itself from that kind of feeling of commodification. And so rejected that kind of like slick consumerism, you know. But that same glamour. But that same world started making the taste an art. It was it was that same kind of hip, fashiony, cool world that made certain art really cool and hip well, too. Like Pollock or like you know, just the idea of like that, you know, that very highfalutin, cool crowd was also the ones making the taste in modern art. Who was the argument that the world is ugly and that it's therefore realistic? No, well, that was definitely, that's still being used today. You know, the world is ugly and we should make ugly things. Because it's real. I mean, the same yeah. thing back to realism. The world is very beautiful, too. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I think alienation has been like a primary subject in the 20th century. And so artists were much more kind of heightening the distance between the beautiful and like the personal or the beautiful and the real as opposed to I mean the the idea of having beauty as an ideal is like held very suspiciously and of course like you know with um, Kant then beauty is all about the sublime you know and the sublime even the terrifying as opposed to something that's like familiar and even domestic right when you look at some of the artists that you, were really influential to you, were they female artists? Were they male? Was it just you were just looking for the best type of art? Were you were there certain female artists that you were really influenced by? The one woman who um, was really influential to me, especially when I was a young artist and a student, was Martha Erlbacher. Um, at who, the New York Academy. At New York Academy, who was chair at New York Academy in 96, right when I was first starting. And I studied uh, drawing with her and anatomy. And um, sadly, she just passed away yeah. in June. And I've been thinking about her so much because I feel like as time goes by, like she's really in my head, you know, all of her teaching and her principles. I mean, actually, my interest in archetype and myth, I could argue, really kind of comes from her teaching and, and why it was it was important to her and uh, and really she had such a um, admonishment that art should be meaningful you know that he, she, she had no 
patience for anyone who just kind of was like, oh, I just felt like doing it that way, or I didn't really think about it. She just, I mean, she would excoriate you, you know, like you have to think about this. You have to understand why you're doing what you're doing and what it means to someone who's a viewer, you know, and she was interested in like archetypes and sex and death. Sounds Freudian. Um, Totally. Yeah, totally. Um, and she was really an important role model because she was like the only female professional artist that was like a, in a, as a realist. You know, of course, you knew about other artists who were maybe at the art museum, but that I was exposed to directly. And she had two sons as well. And um, it's the it's so that she was like my soul like anchor you know like okay she can do it she and she had she had so much integrity as far as her art and her uh, expectations as far as you know her intellectual um acumen and her teaching like and she, she was really um i wanted to be like her was she a founder of the new york academy i don't know i don't i don't think so but i'm not i'm not sure but then she she was wound really, up came on like, in really early on and being yeah. like a major force yeah. in sort of shaping in the drawing department was. especially yeah for sure was that sort of a fascination with of hers or a, of it was a fascination and I think in some ways it was a huge conflict for her because you know the New York Academy even from the time of its founding it was kind of on one hand um, had this academic uh, arm really held up by Martha and um, you know even Ted Seth Jacobs there at the very beginning and. I, um, Ted, Schmidt. Ted Schmidt, and they really wanted to teach this, um, you know, really naturalistic drawing, academic principles. But then from very early on, they also had this side that was much more interested in contemporary conceptual art and like figurative art in kind of a conceptual vein. And I think she very much was like in the middle of all that, you know. Well, I mean, her, her own work is very, like she's very interested in concept. Too. I mean, obviously, Absolutely, right? I mean, yeah. she's focused on that, but yeah. then that's an interesting kind of, I don't know how you bring those two together, but she's obviously very interested in academic sort of principles, but then also very interested in concept. Yeah, and deeply grounded in, in concept and thinking about the meaning of your painting and also working from imagination. That was always something she was like pushing you to try to develop the ability to do is, you know, conceive of something, then figure out the design for it, then maybe, you know, and then using models working from life. She basically never worked from photos, I don't think, but she would generate the designs, generate the concepts from imagination and then use models to, to execute the work. And is that something that you've kind of taken on as well? You know, yeah, more and more. Um, you know, as I've gotten away from my studies and doing things that were more kind of generated from the perceptual, you mm -hmm. know, like having a model and having something in front of you and kind of per painting that perceptual um, world and trying to express that, I'm much more likely to kind of generate the idea of an image from, you know, whether it's a text or a subject that I'm interested in, um, and then, and usually get to get to the point where I have some kind of sketch or study, and then go about figuring out, okay, well, so I need a model for this part, and I need, um, you know, maybe some props or some costume for this part. You know, I figure out what the design is, and then I figure out how can I paint it from life as much as as much as possible. But then you're mixing that. Like I saw your show, uh, your Venus Apocalypse show, and you had a lot of the studies in the show, and you have you do very careful academic drawings. 
are you then transferring those drawings and bringing the model back in to do the paintings, or are the paintings like Rubens, for instance? Yeah, would no, have been I a painting from I the go drawing? back to the model, but it's been really interesting as I'm like thinking, developing this body. I've sort of realized, been thinking a lot about how Rubens and like 18th, 19th century practice, like those drawings are gold, you know, yeah. and it's so much more efficient, right? Because models are expensive. So you hire, you have, you know, I'll do a concept sketch and then I have to get the model in because there's so, I want that specificity. I want that detail. I want that, like, what exactly is the curl of the ear look like? I love the that. Tony Rider, right? like, crawling across every totally like, love millimeter. That. So I get the model in so that I can really get something that feels like real. But then once I have the drawing, I can do a study from the drawing and I won't use the model again I'll just paint it from the drawing because you've done enough painting you can just make it flesh colored and make the shadow shadow right, color. Color. you can like conceptualize, turn the form and you conceptualize the, the flesh we've had a lot of what you're gonna do even if you have the model right right yeah to and in fact extent. in some ways it's very freeing because you're like okay I'm gonna organize the lights I'm gonna I really want this up here to be really bright and have a lot of contrast and I want this down here to be really quiet and so it's so much easier to do that when you're not looking at the the model because when you're looking at the model you kind of chase it around right. you're like you just paint what you see so then after I do that I'll transfer it to the big painting and kind of do the underpainting and then I'll have the model come back so that so I can just to kind of so that I can paint the and, details from right. life you know I want to paint that arm I want to paint that hand that elbow but you've got it mostly painted you're just sort of finishing it's, it it's the underpaint long. just the underpainting oh, I see. Yeah. So the and the underpainting. Oh, so you still have a good amount of model time. Then. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so much faster than. Yeah. Than it used to be. Or less expensive. <laughs> right. Models are you know. But I'll have the model in for at least five or six sessions, just to paint the the figure from life and more if there's a lot of like face detail or something. Explain. Um, you were calling. You're using the word contemporary classicism as far as. What yeah. We're, what we're talking about. Is that something you've you've made up as far as like I don't know finding if I a made word, it up. A, a word um, for what we kind of do? Right. Something we all struggle do. with. It's like we how, totally like, how do you, struggle how with it. Yeah, yeah, like, is it classicism? Really is it realism? Real. Right. Is it um, you know uh, representational right. art? Like and we, we can never get realist, to agreement on it. I, and I you know I use this term because you have to like you know have an elevator pitch and tell people like what you do in a concise <laughs> way. And so that's kind of why I've started using it. I think I use classical because I think people understand what a classical musician is, right? They understand, I work in that form. Okay, so classical if you say a classical is. painting, you can kind of understand, okay, I'm not doing conceptual contemporary installation sculpture. I'm making paintings. But some people I have are going to say you're not training. classical enough because you don't, there are no togas in your paintings. Yeah. Right. You know, well, you don't have like that's angels true. and stuff. But not all classical music is classical in form either. You right. know, there's like romantic right. music. You know, there's a lot of forms. So I'm kind of using classical in a very broad sense. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm hoping people will come along with me because there, there isn't another word that, you know, you can't really use academic because it's, it's not complete either. And right. it's very, people have even bigger issues with academic. And like, I'm not really realist because I'm painting like angels and Venuses like coming they're out of the real. sea. So right. they're not so real. It's not really realism. Well, maybe, yeah, I don't know. And um, and it's not naturalism. And it's not naturalism, and it's you know you can use traditional, but that I don't know. But then that, traditional comes off as this like old, yeah, 
fogey feeling yeah. word that people are like. I'm kind of sounds okay with old fogey, but I don't I don't know the traditional really is what it is. I don't think that quite fits either. Particularly, I mean, particularly what you're like with sort of uh, big piles of computer chips. Right. There's just nothing traditional about the right. big pile of computer chips. But I feel like the, the language of classical painting, you know, it, you have this training, you learn how to paint what you're painting, but then we, I, I wanna take my present life and somehow still just be working in this tradition. I, I actually wanna be totally faithful to my tradition. I'm not trying to like be artificially like, you know, putting in my contemporary moment. I'm just trying to like do it in a really in you're a way that very, feels honest, yeah. like a natural yeah. sort of. Yeah. And also, you're expressing way. what it is you want to express, right. which right. is and, and that's that, the like tradition, it's unavoidably I mean, yeah. contemporary. Repre you know, traditional classical painting. I mean, it changed every you know, it changed all the time from generation to generation of artists, and and I so I think it should. That's what I want to see in our own generation. Is just a continued you know a flowering of of all this of this kind of work that talks to each other about you know how do we represent the body or what's a, what's our subject matter what what kind of backgrounds are we doing like that kind of thing and I use contemporary just kind of to be specific about that it's not you know it's not 19th century you're painting. not painting it's not, it's not a pastiche it's not you know that it um, I didn't arrive here in a time capsule like you know <laughs> are you not trying to go back and Right, right, no, you know, no. But you say, um, which I kind of, I kind of like how you describe this, that you're not chasing the past, that you're using what the artists of the past were, uh, what they were celebrating. Right. That you're trying yeah. to celebrate the same thing. So that seems to be the classicism in it. But it's not like I'm just trying to copy what they're, you know, what they were doing in in a picture form. You're trying to sort of be influenced by the same thing that was influencing them as whether you can say spiritual or conceptual is that they're you're chasing things like the human form yeah. uh you know the, the nature the the you know, being, i think that's the, so being, important this yeah. is like a really important thing so when you're making art right you you have to go back to the source the original source of inspiration so in the 19th century, they had an original source, you know, whether it was nature, it was their culture, it was, you know, they had a, a genesis for what it was they were making. And then so we as artists who are kind of recreating this, um, this field of classical painting, you can't just go to the 19th century and say, I'm going to make paintings that look like that. You have to go, you have to, go to the source. And you have to be inspired in the same way, inspired originally, in the same way that they were inspired originally. And the source is the same then as Absolutely. it is right now. That's something it's that doesn't change. It's nature and design. It's so, nature and design. And that, uh, that, that, that's what I think a lot of people don't understand when they're when they start, you know, when you start bringing up these words of classicism or you know, Renaissance art or something like that, being influenced or or working in well, actually working in a style is not good but being influenced by it you're using the influence of what they were going for now right which doesn't change over time you know that's the same then and it was also what they were looking to the 18th and 17th century artists right you know Bougro or something is that they were doing neoclassical work um so they were looking at the same stuff that titian or at least the influence of what titian was doing right um and I think that's uh, an important 
idea that people don't understand nowadays when you start bringing up words like classicism and stuff that they're like oh you're just trying to paint nymphs and so, no 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 it's it's a it's a sort of a Right. It's, it's, I might it's an, paint it, a nymph, but I'm sure, going to have, go but I'll be able to tell you why I'm thinking but about that. But that just becomes, yeah, because yeah. that becomes more of an iconic idea of right. something. They just sort of develop the idea of it. And then, right. again, that goes back to allegory and myth. That's something that's been around for a long, long time, and that's not going to change. I mean, I think there's new myths that we're creating now and have created in the last hundred years. Um, and that, those would be fine to work with too. You know, I, I don't, know exactly what the myths are but it's like <laughs> well seriously like Jabba, lots of like the myth i can think of is jabba like, the hut no no to i say? was gonna say jabba walkie or uh, like bigfoot those are the myths yeah no, it's like science fiction i <laughs> yeah, mean I think that's fiction. Kinda, yeah. Yeah, this I mean, whole star, new uh, mythological archetype you know thing I mean, that we're comic books are are sort totally. of classes are class they the ideas in comic yeah, books are sort of classical narratives classical yeah narratives. they are nobody would ever call them that no. And they're not afraid of like approaching the ideal, right? There's still idealism in comic books, absolutely. right? There's like good Superman and there's evil and there's is the pinnacle of the absolutely, ideal. man. Yeah. I also think comics are like where you see Rubens most because particularly I think in our sort of world of of sort of more sort of at the atelier world, people are looking at the 19th century and people are not as frequently looking way back to the Renaissance, way back back to the Renaissance right, yeah. and. In comic books, you see Rubens, or you know, you just you see that kind of that Baroque kind of rhythmic thing happening. Yeah, that I, mad energy and sort of. I feel like somehow, except with lasers. Yeah, I, right, I was yeah. obsessed with Rubens as a kid, and Rubens and Michelangelo were like my heroes. And I think it's probably, you know, as a little kid, comic books that sort of led That's me to that aesthetic. Yeah. Kind of led me sort of back to Rubens and Michelangelo. I feel like as an artist, um, I'm, I feel like as far as influences, I feel like I'm going back in time. Like yeah. I, I feel like when I was, you know, trying to learn to paint, I was looking at all this 19th century stuff, just trying to figure it out and trying to like decode it. And now like I'm getting, I keep, now I'm obsessed with the Baroque and like yeah. thinking about Rubens and like all that energy, all that emotion, all that passion, you know, cause that was one thing they didn't really, they kind of, they kind of di got distilled out in late 19th century painting it was all about sort of realism and you know painting of the modern world and that phantasmagorical yeah. energy and emotion and sensuality and passion.